we may have a problem. We have a big problem. All right. Don't know how we could do this without my notes. It's not funny. <laughs> All right, fellas, play a song real quick. Let's lead in a on on the spot hymn. I've got my notes on paper in my office. If y'all will please excuse me for two minutes, I will be back. Yeah, just play play a song and start singing. Okay, now that was embarrassing, but however, we, uh, we can continue. I usually always keep a backup set in my Bible. I, don't, I guess I got brave today. I guess I learned something there. All right, so today I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to be um, in a real brief passage this morning, but I'm going to challenge each and every one of you today to memorize the scripture that we're going to be um, studying. All right, how many are you there yet? First Thessalonians chapter 5. I know you can do it. You have the ability. Chapter 5, verse 16. You got it? How many of you can memorize that? Okay, we got two words there. Rejo rejoice, rejoice. Always. Now, the last few weeks, what we talked about was Jehoshaphat and his battle that he had. And by the time we got all the way through it, we had a common theme from the people of Judah and Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat as they continued to worship God before, during the initiation of the crisis, during and after. Once you read that chapter and read through that, you can just see a, a sense of joy amongst the people, regardless of the situation that was facing them uh, and the issue that they had faced. But in 1 first, in first Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, what we have here is we have an imperative command which is just as binding upon Christians as any other command that we find in the Word of God, and that is to do what? 
rejoice always, not sometimes, it's easy to rejoice sometimes and when things are going great in our own opinion, but rejoicing always is something that we as Christians should be able to do. It's a command that we have here before us. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, if you continue reading in the next few verses, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I know we struggle with the details about God's will in our lives, but here's one, one place in the Word of God where it is spelled out for you black and white. It is God's will for you to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. But today we're going to be focusing on rejoicing always. So if we're given a command to do so, it also implies that we have the ability to do it, to rejoice always. And we're being called to rejoice always. It is spelled out for us that it is God's will for us to do so. But in my observation as a Christian and being around Christians a lot, and it may be the same as yours, oftentimes Christians fall short of this command to rejoice always. Always rejoice. How many of you have fallen short of rejoicing always? All right, so here we are. We all, we're all in this boat together. There are times where we face difficult situations and things can get us down. We start focusing on the wrong things, and our joy seems to deplete from our, uh, from our souls, and we are not rejoicing always. But if God has instructed us to do it, it's the will of God for us to do it, there's got to be a way that we can rejoice always. And though sometimes this shortcoming is apparent in our day-to-day -day lives, it also spills over into our times of worship as God's people gather together. And why is it that it seems that Christians <coughs> don't seem to have joy in their lives? It's a really good question that we really need to ask and try to answer today. There may be several different reasons and details, but today we'll touch on just a few really big, um, really big ones here. But before we get started, the first thing we're going to address is the... I'm going backwards. Yes, there we go. The first thing that we're going to address is joy in and of itself. Rejoice always. If we're going to make, make a commitment to follow the will of God for us in our lives and rejoice always, so what is joy and how do we define it? So the first thing that we do is, is, um, is define the word joy. Now it comes from the Greek word which is kara, which is closely related to charis, which is grace, and charisma, which is gift. And it's very closely related to the definition that, that we find in the Bible dictionary that comes up to give us the definition, which is a delight or gladness. It is the emotion excited by expectation or acquisition of good. Does that make sense? Pretty simple. And it kind of really, really kind of sums it up there. It is a delight or gladness. It is the emotion excited by expectation of good or the actual reception of something good. How many of y'all have experienced joy before in receiving something? You're actually experiencing the joy in anticipation for what you know that is going to happen to be good. We can have that joy, and that's, ex that's exactly what is meant by joy in, in what we see here in verse 16. But there's a strong relationship between joy, the Greek word kara, and charisma, gift. There's a strong relation there. And understanding this relation between joy and gift allows us to appreciate the very important principle when it comes to rejoicing always. Now, the joy that we show, I want us to understand, is in direct relation 
to the value of the gift that you receive. The joy that you, um, the joy that you experience, the joy that you um, uh, exemplify is in direct relation to the value you give to the gift that you have received. It really is all dependent on your evaluation of what you have received, which determines the level of joy that you experience. So in other words, what we can say is the greater the value that we put on the gift, the greater joy when that gift is received. You know, gifts of various value. Obviously, if you've received a gift that, ha- that held a value in your mind, a monetary value of a nickel, you may be thankful. Ho-hum a little bit. But in relation to a, the joy that you would experience when someone was to give you that cost $100,000 would be a greater experience of joy. Are you following me here? Yeah, so our level of joy is highly dependent on the value upon which we have received or the anticipation of what we are going to receive. Not necessarily the actual value of it, but the value that we give it in our minds and in our own interpretation of what it is. So as we continue to go, we can see the response here. We can see the we can see how the emotion of joy is direct proportion to the evaluation of the gift received. So the greater the perceived value, the greater level of joy we will exemplify. Also, we'll go a little bit step further here, the greater level of joy brings with it a greater likelihood that you're going to tell someone about it. Can you see where we're going? Are you picking up what I'm starting to put down? What we have here is the greater level of joy brings with it a greater likelihood that you will tell someone about it. Whenever you get a great gift, how often do you share that with your friends? When something great happens to you, and you say you have an experience, and you're willing to show that and to share what has actually been given to you in doing that. So the greater value you give the gift, the greater the, greater the amount of joy that you express in this. If we just take a, a few pages back look, and look into the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians back in chapter 1, as we start in verse 6 here, it kind of gives a description to the people to whom um, Paul um, is writing to in the church of Thessalonica. It says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. They received the word in what? Much affliction. Their circumstances were not ideal. As a matter of fact, they were times of affliction upon them. But they received it with joy of the Spirit. And what did they do with that? With, because they had experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit, and they valued the, the gift of the Holy Spirit through their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, look what happened in verse 7 and 8. It says, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place. Because you were so joyous about the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, you went on telling everyone about it, and it was very contagious. It says, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Paul was saying, what y'all have done, the excitement that you guys have shared and telling everyone about the gift that you have received has gone out, and we don't need to come and do it. You're handling business. So we can see that even in the affliction that the church of Thessalonica was in, they were willing to spread the joyous gospel of Jesus Christ 
because they valued it just that much. So when we apply this principle of gift, of reception of a gift versus the amount of joy that we experience, and if, and if the level of joy is directly in proportion to the, to the value that we give the gift, how does that apply to Christianity? Well, let's, we have to ask a few questions. What has God given us? Has God given us anything? In a sense, God has given us everything. It's a very difficult question to, to even uh, start to make a list because, in fact, God has given us everything. Thing. We might have a better chance at, at writing down what God has not given us in this sense. In James chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Every good thing that you experience in this life and you will experience in the next comes from God. So what has he given us? Do we have any reason to be joyful? But not only that, he has given us the most valuable gift of eternal life. It holds the greatest value. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it says that we have earned death, we have earned separation from God, but yet the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what this gift does, it brings us to a point of freedom from the condemnation of sin. It brings us into a fellowship with God through his son Jesus Christ. It gives us a hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ's return. And shouldn't the great value of this gift produce an incredible amount of joy in the lives of believers? Yeah, it should. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but you can respond. Yes, it does. And as I mentioned in the introduction, many Christians who possess this great gift are not as joyful as they should be. I'm not as joyful as I should be. I can get a slight bit cantankerous every now and then. And I, fail to, and I fail to rejoice always as I am commanded to in Scripture. Now, there may be a few different reasons why that is. So why is this that some Christians who possess the great gift do not seem to be as joyful as we ought to be if, in fact, we do possess the greatest gift of all? But we've got to ask the question, why? And there's a few things that we may need to look at here. If we do not find ourselves... Joyful always is a possibility that we may not understand the magnitude of our sin. We may not understand the magnitude of what sin does and where sin has ultimately taken us. When we look at the Word of God, we can see in several different places in Scripture that in, in Isaiah chapter 59 in verses 1 and 2, we find that sin separates us from God. It builds a wall in between us and God. It breaks our fellowship from the Lord. Listen to what it says. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear too heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Our sin, the magnitude of our sin separates us our sinful behavior and transgression against God's law and his nature separates us from God. And not only does it separate us from God, it separates us from God for an eternity if left unchecked. It condemns us to an eternal spiritual death, which is hell. 
In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and fire, which is the second death. How many of you were named within that list? Yeah, we all were. In order for us to really truly appreciate the value that God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we need to understand the magnitude of our sin and what it has done and how it has separated us from God. Whenever we look at the law of God in the Word and in the Scripture, it's not just about a bunch of do's and don'ts that we check off and we cross out. That's not what, it is, what, what it's about. But the law of God, it is, it, is a, it is a revelation to us about the very nature of who God is. And whenever we break His law, we are going against the very nature of who God is. And it's offensive to Him. And it brings about a judgment upon mankind because God is a righteous and a holy and a just God who must punish sin. Our sin separates us from God. Our great God and creator who created us to have fellowship with him, but through our sin, we have removed ourselves from him. It condemns us to hell, and it brings the wrath of God upon mankind. In, in John chapter 3 and verse 36, it says, He who believes the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Sin is serious. Sin is terrible. In order for us to understand the value of the gift of salvation, we truly need to see sin for what it really, truly is. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will judge sin one day. He will judge this world in righteousness according to this very book. And none will escape. The wrath of God will be upon all people who have never trusted Christ as, his, as, as their Savior. The record will be set straight. So we have to understand that, that, the, that the punishment, the just sentencing for our sin is eternal separation from God. Do you see the magnitude of sin? Whether your sins are great or whether they're few, regardless the violation of the law in one part, you're guilty of breaking the entirety of it, according to the book of James. But how can we not understand the magnitude of sin? How is it possible that we can get to a point where we don't understand the magnitude of sin and how serious it is and how serious of, of an offense to our God our behavior is when we sin against his nature? Perhaps maybe we look at it from the world's perspective. Maybe we've been captivated by the lives of the world who say, you know, sin is not all of that bad. Sin is not really that bad as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, as long as it makes you happy, as long as it makes you feel good. If you feel good, do it. As long as you have these desires, at least live them out. Be true to yourself. Whenever we take the perspective of the world, we can be very, very easily deceived into thinking that sin is just really not that bad. All sin separates. All sin brings a punishment of, in, of, uh, brings a, punishment of a righteous, holy God. The magnitude of our sin is really even hard to describe. I don't even think I'm being able to do it justice here. But instead of looking at sin from the world's perspective, we need to look at sin from God's perspective. How does God view sin? As we said earlier, one sin makes a person guilty. You murder one person, guess what? 
you're a murderer. But if you tell one lie, guess what? You're a liar. You stand before God guilty, alone, without Christ. For whosoever shall keep the law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Sin has affected everyone. Sin is so terrible. Sin is so terrible that in order for us to be redeemed, it required the death of the Son of God in order to pay the debt that our sin accrued against our Creator. So in order to really, truly appreciate the gift of salvation, we really need to see the position in which we are before a holy, righteous God and the magnitude of our sin. And until we understand the magnitude of the sin, we will not be able to appreciate salvation, which leads us perhaps to the main reason why most Christians lack joy. Is not only we may not understand the magnitude of our sin, but we may not understand the magnitude of our gift. And these are directly related. These are completely and totally related. Because if we look at our sin as this bad, then we'll evaluate the gift of salvation to be right around here, right? But in reality, the magnitude of our sin is here. That means the value of the gift of salvation is there. So you can see, so you can see how we can mis-evaluate what salvation is based on what we really think about ourselves and our sinful behavior. If we kind of write it off and justify it, then we can say, well, you know, I didn't really need that much salvation, and the value of salvation is very low. But if you truly see the magnitude of your sin and that one sin separates you from God forever, in hell forever, you'll understand that the price of the gift and the value that you have and whenever, whenever Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, the value of that gift has to go up to match and to exceed the magnitude of what your sin truly is. Does that make sense? Now, we don't understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done, and it's possible as a possible cause of why we are not joyous, because we don't understand how great a gift it truly is. We have to understand because of our sin, we have been separated from God, but in Christ Jesus, we have been reconciled back into a loving relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, it says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us back to him. He's done all the work. He gave the gift. The offer is on the table in order to be reconciled back into a fellowship, to be restored as we were before. Maybe we don't understand the magnitude of our gift and that how Christ has made all things new. If we don't understand the magnitude of our sin to begin with, we won't understand the significance of being made new. Whenever we look at our sin and how wretched we really truly are without Christ and how dirty we are and how messed up that we are and how we have sinned against a holy and righteous God and whenever we see ourselves in relation to who Christ is, we can see how filthy and dirty that we are. And God just didn't just clean you off. He didn't just polish you up and dust you off and put you back out into the world. He made you new. He gave you a new life under a new master. Everything has been wiped away. Everything has been washed clean. You are a new creature. 
a new creation. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The magnitude of this gift makes you new. We also may under- misunderstand the magnitude of the gift in, in seeing that the wrath of God no longer abides on you. He that believes in the Son has everlasting life. He that believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he does not believe the wrath of God abides on him already. But once we come to know Christ as our personal Savior, the wrath of God is pulled away and it no longer abides on us. We, we get to a point where we can see the great gift that we have is that Jesus himself is no longer ashamed to call us his brother. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, co-heirs to the very throne of God with an inheritance that is eternal, pure, undefiled, that will last forever. Can you understand the magnitude of the gift? You have to understand the magnitude of the gift in relation to the magnitude of sin, where we were before we knew Christ and where we are now in Christ. And understanding the true value and the magnitude of our sin as well as the gift that we've received through Jesus Christ, it should bring about an incredible, great amount of joy. It should give us the ability to be joyous no matter what this world can throw at us because Jesus Christ has died on the cross and paid for our sins and given us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven, we are made new, and we are called out to follow him with our lives. Co-heirs of the throne. What a great gift that we have. We do have to raise the question again, how do we misunderstand the magnitude of this gift? After we have somewhat described it, again, I don't think I'm able to do it justice. But how have we not come to an understanding of the magnitude of this gift that brings about an incredible amount of joy, a joy that we can express always, which is the very will of God in Christ Jesus for us? Well, here's some hints. It kind of all boils back down to the same thing. In John chapter 15 and verse 11, this is what it says. These things I have spoken to you, this is what Jesus was saying, I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Also, John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, In these things we write unto you that your joy might be full. So what does this reveal? Doesn't re- doesn't, in these particular two verses here, it doesn't really express how to be joyful or how to experience the joy, does it? But what we do find out here is that these things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full, it tells us that we may need to go back and read a few of the scriptures beforehand when it comes to, in relation to our joy. Jesus said, I have spoken this to you that your joy may be full. John wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these things I write unto you that your joy might be full. Is it possible that the reason why that we don't experience the joy that we should as Christians is because we don't understand the magnitude of our sin, nor do we understand the magnitude of our gift, and is it because we don't spend time in Scripture where our understanding of these things can be expanded? I think so. 
I think so. Because joy, as it, just as it's rooted in, some, in, in, in an expectation of the reception of something good, we have a firm foundation from which joy can flow, and that is the unchanging word of God. Our joy needs to be based on facts. And the facts of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return alone is enough for us to be joyful. Always. Always be joyful. And I know we're running out of time. I've got one more point. Something else that we need to understand. Not only do we may not understand the magnitude of our sin, we may not understand the magnitude of the gift that God has given us through his son Jesus. We may not understand that there's counterfeit joy out there that many people are chasing just to find emptiness. There's a counterfeit joy there's a type of religion and type of teaching that says, you know, it's kind of better felt than taught. It seems that Christians today, they're seeking joy through other things other than the unchanging standard of the Word of God that reveals who God is and His expectations for us and what He wants from us. As we, as we turn back to uh, John chapter 15, as we said, these things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you. If you go back just a couple verses, it says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That your joy might be full. We abide in Jesus Christ as Jesus abided in the Father. We keep his commandments, we obey his word, and the result is joy. The result is joy. And God's revealed word tells us how we can experience that joy by following his word, following his direction, turning to the unchanging word of God and doing so. What we have, in, what we have a lot in the Christian culture of today is they're seeking joy through other things. They're seeking, they're seeking joy through temporary emotional highs that are often experienced in special worship services and different events and times of entertainment when the emotions rule instead of the Word of God rules. And they're chasing around these, these emotional highs. Now, I'm not condemning these types of events. I'm not condemning, you know, Christian concerts or even Christian entertainment. But what I'm saying, if it is the emotional high and entertainment that is your source of joy, when these sources are no longer available, your joy will deplete. When these sources of entertainment and these sources of these emotional highs are no longer there, your joy will deplete. How many of you have ever experienced that before? You don't have to raise your hand. And what we see oftentimes, we see people, they jump from church to church in pursuit of that emotional high that they have gotten before like a drug addict progressing through a, great, a gateway drug to the hard stuff. Chasing an emotional high one right after the other. And whenever that source is no longer there, you see them bail out or they chase after another church. You see people jump from church to church in and and, and search of this emotional high that they may have experienced somewhere else rather than experiencing true joy through the unchanging word of God and obedience to it, rather than that, they focus on what God, rather than that, they, they focus on God's word that teaches us about how to experience the joy through obedience. 
rather than chasing his emotional highs, was turn to the Word of God and see what he says on how to enjoy this life and to bring honor and glory to him. And it's found in obedience to God's Word. It's not found in chasing these temporary happiness. The life-changing transformation comes from the renewing of the mind through the very Word of God. And what we try to do, we try to short-circuit the joy and the emotional high by going straight to the emotions and entertainment, and it even happens in church. Like I said, I'm not condemning entertainment. I'm not condemning the events that are out there. But like I said, if that is the source of your joy, aside from the unchanging Word of God who explains to us how we are to behave, which ultimately brings us joy, then once that source is gone, your joy will, de will deplete and you will be chasing something else down the road. So what happens oftentimes whenever people are seeking a church either to attend or try to move, they tend to come to church making demands for desires of their own to be met. They go to a church with a checklist of things that they demand needs to be in place before they're willing to bring their family to a place of worship. And these desires that they are requiring out of a church or a congregation could be in the, the flavor of music, it could be in youth programs, it could be children's programs, singles ministry, recovering ministry. As long as they can meet my desires and meet my needs, then that's when I will join that church and enjoy everything that they can serve me with. Do you have this for me? Do you have that for me? It requires them to chase those emotional highs that feed their own desires rather than seeking out the truth of the Word of God and living out our lives in obedience to bring God ultimate glory, which in turn gives us glory. If I want us to understand something very clearly, church is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what I can get out of First Baptist Church. It's not about what they, it's not about what they owe me by, by showing up at the door. It is not about you. What church is, it's about coming together and hearing the Word of God preached, hearing the Word of God taught, and in, in that it may expose who we truly are, and, it, and, it will, and that we will be changed and transformed in order to bring honor and glory to the Father. It is about glorifying Jesus Christ through the church. It is not about what, I, what the church can do for me. It is about me being the church and honoring God with my life. There's a counterfeit joy. Joy is not ultimately found in emotional highs. It's not found in pure entertainment. When those things are put in place and checked at the right place, they're fine. They're okay. But if your joy rests in that, beware. As soon as it's gone, then you're gone. As soon as it disappears, as soon as a church no longer meets your needs or your desire, you'll be hopping to another church, if that, in fact, is the foundation of your joy. Our joy does not come in such a way. Our joy comes in the obedience to God's word and his instruction for us as his children. And we, as sinful people, have separated ourselves from God, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled and given an incredible gift in inheriting the kingdom of God and having our place with Jesus forever. 
We should have every desire to be obedient to what God calls us to do. And we should be able to do it with joy regardless of what the world throws at you. God's word reveals true joy. God's word is the source. If you want a solid, continual source of joy, look no further than the word of God that is in your hand where God has revealed himself to you. In these words, God has revealed himself to you. He's revealed himself to, to you through creation as well as the word of God. He has revealed himself to you. He has revealed who you were before you came to know him, and he has revealed who you are in him now. That is enough joy that should last us for an eternity. And guess what? It will. It will. But I do have to ask the question, how can we fall for such a counterfeit joy. It's possible that we may allow ourselves to be influenced by the, by the world and its standards. We tend to value material things over spiritual things. We show more joy for things like a new job or a promotion or a raise, a new house, a car, a husband, a wife, children, than we do about the receiving of salvation, the greatest gift of all. What in this world gets your greatest, what in this world gives you the greatest amount of joy? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we do not rejoice over material gifts that we receive. Indeed, we should be thankful for all of those things and glorifying God for the possessions that he has blessed us with in this world. But if we are not as joyful over our spiritual gift, then we must renew our minds through the word of God and reevaluate the magnitude of our sin. Reevaluate the magnitude of the gift of God through His Son Jesus Christ and reevaluate your salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, it says this is how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We have a great gift, folks. And we have everything in perspective. When we understand the magnitude of our sin, we understand the magnitude of the gift of God. And in receiving that gift, we have been brought from death unto eternal life with Christ Jesus. Rejoicing always is simply a byproduct. Once we come to the right perspective of everything around us. This morning as we stand for a time of invitation, I pray that